You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Well, Ben, uh, it was a weird-ass night in Abu Dhabi for UFC 294. I guess weird-ass afternoon here in America in the one true time zone. Just a bunch of bizarre happenings, man. In the fe- in the uh, in the featured fights, you had Islam Mahachev take care of business against Alexander Volkanovsky via head kick, and in the co-main, you had Kamzat Shemaev slip by Kamaru Usman at 185 pounds. All told, you had four first-round stoppages on the pay-per-view card. I'll be one of them, resulting in a no, no contest. But uh, this was just a strange event. It was a uh, it was a good night for cheating in the octagon. That's for damn sure. We had groin strikes. We had illegal knees. We had staph infections basically running wild. Uh, but I know, Ben, probably the first thing you want to talk about. What's up with your guy, Paulo Costa? Wilding out out there in the crowd, having random dudes trying to jump over barricades or whatever to go after Paulo Costa. Who, is it? Uh, is it just a particular kind of crowd in Abu Dhabi, or did we have a, some silly little guy action here? I'm just saying, Jed. Don't mistake Paulo Costa's silly little guy energy for weakness. Yeah. Just because he likes to have fun on the internet, a little bit of a jokester, does not mean that Paulo Costa is going to put up with any skullduggery, any any tomfoolery out there if you see him in these streets he's still a jacked ass pro fighter and you yeah. might want to you might want to behave accordingly that's what i was wondering who's out here trying to fight paulo costa of all people to look at the even if you didn't know anything about what he does for a living to look at that fellow and go <laughs> you know what i bet i bet those are all just gym muscles i bet that guy he can't do shit yeah. i'm going to go up there and, and stick poke my finger in his chest and uh, look like a big, tough guy. Bad idea. It's bad just idea. a bad idea. You know, you Plus, and me if you're have... in an MMA event, I got to know you know a little something yeah. about Paulo Costa. Right. I was just going to say, you and I have been to a lot of UFC events. And frequently, you will see guys in the hotel, walking the streets, out to dinner, while you're at the event, whatever. You will see guys. And you don't know who they are. You don't know. But you look at them and you think, that's somebody. Yep. Because you can tell. Dudes walking around with their ears sticking off the side of their heads like a pair of fists guys you know have that look you can be like oh i don't know who that is but that's somebody and then Mm -hmm. more often times than not on saturday night you see him in somebody's corner yeah and you're like oh see that guy he is somebody i knew it i could tell just from looking at him from riding in the elevator with him that that guy was somebody so you see paulo costa walking around the arena over there in abu dhabi i would think something would click in your mind like oh that's somebody. That's a guy. May probably not to be trifled with. Get you an autograph. Get you a <laughs> selfie with him. Uh, you know, get him to autograph your your secret juice T-shirt 
or whatever. Ask him where you two can pick up a camouflage sectional sofa. But don't take it past that. Do yourself a favor and don't go messing with the silly little guy. Ben, have you ever had a doctor tell you you didn't actually get kicked in the balls? <laughs> a couple times. Yeah, that's happened a couple times. Weird part Different about you is that it was both, It was true both times for yeah. you. Poor old Victor Henry. I don't know if it was true for him, man. I think it looked like he kind of got blasted in the groin and then spent five plus minutes writhing around on the octagon floor only to have his preliminary fight against Javid Basharat end via no contest 15 seconds into the second round. Uh, Javid Basharat, cool with it at first. And then later (laughs) on, he decided that it was bullshit. And then he's going to go ahead and get into a Twitter beef with your man, Josh Barnett, which I don't know, man. First of all, Josh Barnett, fairly reasonable individual, relatively speaking. Right. Especially for a fighter. Yeah. In this wild, weird, and sometimes wonderful world, Josh Barnett, fairly reasonable human being. Josh Barnett's going to not going to be out here fronting, right? Pretending like his guy got kicked in the balls when he didn't. So if you're Javid Basharat, man, I don't even know what you're doing out here beefing with Josh Barnett on the Twitter machine. Here's what I don't understand is that when I saw this stuff was popping off over there via Twitter, I went over there. To check out, just just to go to Javid Basharat's page, see what's going on over there. And one thing I don't understand is he he's posting videos like it's the damn Zapruder film. Yep. But to my eye, the videos show him kicking the dude in the nuts. Right. <laughs> he's posting the videos as if it's like damning evidence, as if it's a smoking gun. See, this proves that he's faking. It's like, bro, I'm watching the video that you posted and I see you kicking him in the nuts. I don't know what you saw that you thought this really makes my case for me. You know, I just, I do not understand how he and I watched the same video and he came out of that being like, I know this, this will show him. This will shut everybody else up. Like, once they see this video, I will be exonerated. And you're like, bro, you, you're, you're telling on yourself. You're posting the evidence of you doing the thing. Then you get into it with Josh Barnett. I saw as the, the Twitter beef was raging on, uh, I saw somebody just like a bystander get in the replies and be like, if Josh Barnett were on here saying this stuff to me, I would feel so, such shame that I would spend the rest of my life thinking about how to earn his respect back. <laughs> Classic uh, Josh Barnett tweet where he says, we're in the hospital right now to get an ultrasound and some exams. His balls are swollen like the size of a satsuma. <laughs> you know what a satsuma is, Ben? I have no idea what a satsuma is. It's like is. a fucking orange. But you know okay. Josh Barnett. Yeah. He's veteran, a veteran of the overseas scenes, let's say. Yeah. He's going to go ahead and, with a satsuma reference. Also, tweet. he's gonna. We can rely on Josh Barnett to give us an up to the minute account of <laughs> this dude's balls. He's yeah. not just gonna be like, he's he. I asked him. He said that the balls hurt. He's gonna be like, let's take a look, bro. Let's see what we're dealing with, and then he's gonna report back. Yeah. And I mean, can you imagine though? You get kicked in the balls. You're down there, like f- just like sick to your stomach from a ball shot. The doctor comes in. 
of all the things you think the doctor and you might say to each other, you don't think you're going to get into a conversation about the doctor about whether or not you were in fact kicked in the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. If I was Victor Henry, I might be like, Barnett, bro, how about a few less tweets about my balls? Huh? Just a couple few less. I understand you're trying to help. (laughs) I understand that. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the sentiment. It's possible you're doing too much. (laughs) Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. But that's not all. You can find the co-main event, Ben Folks and myself all week over on Patreon. Hit us up at patreon.com slash co-main event. Get loads of extra audio and video content, as well as access to our official Discord message board. The coolest people in MMA are constantly chatting it up over there on any number of topics. If that sounds good to you, go ahead, matriculate on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and choose from any of our handy, handy patronage tiers. That'll get you on board. We know you won't be disappointed. You could also scoop up some dope CME merchandise. Just head over to our merch shop where you'll find old favorites like our original Dundasso t-shirt, which in the wake of UFC 294, good time to scoop up a Dundasso t-shirt. Uh, you or can, uh, the Dundasso sweatshirt, which I'm going to tell you, no, no bullshit here. The softest, most comfortable sweatshirt I own and those chilly months are coming. Yeah. You do wear that one a lot, which I appreciate. You can get the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirt. You can also find a lot of cool new stuff. We got brand new Are You Fucking Kidding Me t-shirts. We got officially licensed merchandise for the dreaded MMA gods. And we got a couple of the hottest sellers on the market. We got the Bobby Nux shirt. And we also got the Volcamania t-shirt, despite the fact that Volcamania did not run wild over the weekend. Just go to our website, co-mainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand page of the screen that says shop. We're partnering with our friends at Superconductor on the shop. A Superconductor is a brand and design studio. You've seen their work on the CME for a long time. We can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at Studio Superconductor. We got music again this week from longtime listener and friend of the show, Ross Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more at HTTPS slash slash soundcloud.com slash s-t-h-l-m ross in other words soundcloud.com slash s-t-h-l-m ross jesus you had to go with the https i just just wanted people to know where to go you know https colon slash slash it's like somebody's grandfather telling them about a a page they found on the world wide web we've done this almost 600 times you and me sitting here i'm just trying to mix it up man you know H-T-T-P-S dot Pornhub dot com. It's very exciting information I've found here. Ben, can you come over? I can't get on to my email. <laughs> SoundCloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Ross. Stockholm Ross is what that's short of short for. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Islam Mahachev said he didn't change a thing between preparing for Charles Oliveira and then having to prepare for Alexander Volkanovsky. And it turned out that was a pretty good idea. And in round number two, Hamzat Chemaev beats Kamaru Usman, but maybe just barely? So the question is, how you feeling this morning if you're Sean Strickland? And in round number three, holy shit, Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury box this weekend. That really snuck up on us. In any case, 
will we get the chance to see if the power of the MMA gods can extend into boxing? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Bowser's Castle Groundskeeper. Okay. So they got to get in the in the Wayback Machine for that for that reference. I don't recall that castle having a ton of grass or topiaries or anything. I mean, it seemed pretty stark, honestly. Yeah, horticulture. Not a lot of horticulture yeah. going on over there at Bowser's Castle. It seemed like maybe the groundskeeping just is like making sure the lava's still flowing and yeah. the, the bridges disappear every once in a while. You know what they did, I think, have a lot of were those uh, swords of fire that swung around trying to right. trying to get you. Those, those could be kind of intensive maintenance-wise. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, he writes, The tragic comedy that is Magomed Ankalaev's UFC career added another chapter Sunday, apart from his series with Q Dalaba, literal last-second loss to Paul Craig, and his championship draw was Saturday's DQ-flavored uh, knee, the worst sin. This Ben, this was one of the most bizarre situations I've seen inside the cage in a long time. Basically, Johnny Walker and Magomed Ankalaev still trying to fight each other after the doctor had called it off. And yet you had to get Dana White in there. You had to get Dana White himself into the cage to tell Johnny Walker, especially, but also Magomed Ankalaev to uh, to chill dog. He died. You had to get Dana White to go in there and do a chill dog on these two guys. That's insane. It is. I also think that. We need a little more standardization about when we're having these conversations with a fighter to determine how badly he's hurt or something. Because the, we did the thing with Johnny Walker, right? Of asking him where he is. Yeah. Do you know where you are? Yeah. And they asked like, him, first they asked him, what country are you in? And I was like, come on, in fairness. <laughs> Do you think Johnny Walker or many MMA fighters, frankly, know what the United Arab Emirates is? Do you think they know where Abu Dhabi is? Hell no. They're just getting on the fucking plane, man. Getting off the plane, going down the water slide where you come out the mouth of the King Cobra Snake, weighing in, going to the fight. They don't know they're in the United Arab Emirates. That's an unfair question to ask Johnny Walker. It reminds me of the scene from Clueless where she gets hit in the head and they say, oh, you know, we got to. Make sure she's okay. Ask her questions. And they ask, like, what's eight times seven? And they say, no, ask her stuff she knows. This is kind of the same situation. It's also like, how specific do you need the answer to be before you go, he's okay? Because I know we talked about that one where I think it was Frank Mir when he got rocked and they asked him, where are you? And he said, I'm at the Mandalay Bay. And they were like, well, we're at the MGM Grand Garden Arena, but it's right down the street. So close enough. Yeah. And we'll let him go. Yeah, and it seemed like Johnny Walker was close enough with some of this stuff. But also, uh, again, it just seems like guy can just get blasted full on in the head with a knee that we all know is illegal. That anybody who has any sort of professional MMA experience knows is illegal. Especially a guy who has been in the UFC for many years now at this point. And Magomed Ankalaev, a guy, he'd been in the UFC more than five years. At this point, you know the rules. This part of the rules has not changed. And yet, we still come out of that going like, well, we don't really want to punish him for it. So we'll just say, screw it. Yeah. You know what? And it's like, no what context. does it take? It's inten- unintentional, they said. He 
definitely meant to throw that fucking knee. The part about it getting stopped and the fight being over might be unintentional. But it's like, what does it take? Does it take an evil glimmer in the guy's eyes? Do you need <laughs> to see signs of premeditation and malevolence? Yeah. I don't think you should. That's clearly an illegal knee. He meant to throw it and land it on the dude's head. He did. That resulted in the fight being stopped. It's a foul. Ought to be a DQ. We're just afraid to pull that trigger on people. And it's it's weird. I don't understand it. In, ed- in order for a foul to be intentional in mixed martial arts, a supervillain has to tie you to a chair and explain his master plan to you because he, do- he knows it doesn't matter because you're about to die anyway. That's what has to happen. Yeah. For it to be an intentional foul. Did Johnny Walker get himself in trouble being a little silly little guy in this fight? Because it seemed like he was doing okay on the feet. And then uh, Magomed Ankalaev hits him in the stomach. And it seemed like Johnny Walker did the rope-a-dope. He played yeah. a little possum and then tried to th- throw the flying knee himself when Ankalaev came in at him. And he just ended up getting pushed up against the cage and taken down. And from there, you had the unintentional foul that led to the to the stoppage. Right, but isn't that the Johnny Walker we want? Yes, Remember we want when silly little was... guy Johnny Walker. Yeah. He's the original we want... Weirdsmobile almost. We want uh, all the way spaz Johnny Walker. We want the Johnny Walker who fights like the inflatable like noodle arm guy outside the car dealership. That's the Johnny Walker we want. Remember when he was that silly little guy for a while and then he went to like TriStar and they they just wrung all the silly little guyness right out of him. And sent him out there to lose like a boring decision. And we went, this is no fun. If he's going to lose, he should at least lose being wacky. Being the zany, light heavyweight we know he is. And so, if you're Johnny Walker, I think, yeah, make your peace with sometimes you are going to try some shit and it's not going to work out entirely. But I do, the spirit of this question makes a good point about Magomed Ankalaev, who at this point, you know... We sent him in there to fight Jan Blahovich when he's on this long winning streak. You know, the like the, the, the loss to Paul Craig, it's in his UFC debut. He would have won if he hadn't lost. Yeah, one we all second know that. before the bell, before the final yeah. bell. Then he reels off like eight or nine fight win streak or something, gets this shot for the vacant light heavyweight title. And we went, oh, okay, well, it looks like this is damn near a coronation for him. He rolls in there to fight Jan Blahovich and ends up with a draw. And you're like, man, they were really trying to set you for you to spike it, and you couldn't. <laughs> then you roll in here for Johnny Walker, which stylistically, that should be to your advantage. And you find a way to not quite lose, but not win either. And you're just like, man, this it seems like you everything was going great. You were positioned for some, some success. And then, nope. Just yeah. you found a way to, to screw it up both times. Yeah, in the wake of John Jones's departure, I kind of expected Magomed Ankalaev to be the champ by now, but uh, he's not. He's not the champ. So we'll see what happens moving forward. Next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, who writes, after her UFC 294 win, Victoria Dudikova announced she had staph infection on her butt and, quote, places that isn't necessarily okay to announce to the world. Discourse. Hmm. Now, Ben, Dudikova wasn't the only fighter who came out and said she had staff after this thing was over. I believe Mike Breeden did the same thing. Interestingly enough, uh, both Breeden and Dudikova were victorious in their fights at catchweights. So staff infected fighters went 2-0 over the weekend. Dana White, not happy 
He comes out here. Somebody asks him at the post-fight press conference. I think they asked him if it was time to change the medicals because fighters were getting through and into the cage with staph infections. And he basically said, now I am paraphrasing here, obviously, but he basically said that would be too hard. He said, no, we can't change them. We do fights every weekend. Something to that accord. Like it would be too difficult, too much hassle to try to make sure nobody has staff before they get in there. Yeah, I couldn't really tell where he was starting to go with that part of the answer. It seemed like he stopped himself halfway because he realized maybe I'm not adhering strictly enough to the Dana White playbook that I need to basically lash out at the fighters here instead of admitting that we don't want to change the medicals because it would either be too expensive or too much of a hassle. Well, again, it seems like we're getting right back into an issue that the UFC has dealt with in the past and seemed like it learned some lessons from, which is that if you end up sort of being in charge of yourself, then you're going to have to answer more questions about how that shit went. It's not as easy when you can't just be like, goddamn Nevada State Athletic Commission, it's their fault. Talk to them if you want to know about this stuff. But he starts, the question was, do do you need to do something more so that this doesn't happen? And then he's like, hey, we do fights almost every weekend. And you're like, okay, we knew that. That's, I'm not sure what you're saying there. And then he says, if you're going to lie, you know, on the pre-fight medicals and everything, then lie all the way home. That's his quote. Mm -hmm. Basically, don't then come out after the fight and tell everybody that you lied on the medicals and you got away with it. Which, that is an interesting take from the dude who has a vested interest in these fighters staying in the fights, uh, but also has an interest in them not making the UFC look bad by pointing out what they push through to stay in these fights. Because it's like, again, the UFC likes it when... You're willing to get in there no matter what, even if it's a bad idea for you. Stay in the fight. Don't pull out. Say yes to whatever the opportunities are. They they need that. That's kind of necessary to keep this train rolling. But then you, pretty reasonably, afterwards, you want the fans and the media to know what you were willing to go through, the sacrifices you made to keep it, yourself in this fight, to, to go in there, the things that you felt you overcame. And then, but if you talk about that then, well, the UFC would have preferred you shut up and went home and deal with your staff uh, on your own time. Yeah. He but kinda, also. He kind of notably did not say don't do it, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he wasn't like, if you have staff infections, stay home. But no, it was just like, shut up about it. Because if you don't shut up about it, then a reporter will ask me at a press conference and I don't like that. That, that was the tenor of the remarks. But also. How you feel if you are one of the other fighters on this card or this person's opponent and afterwards they're like, yeah, I had this really bad staph infection all over my ass. And then you're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> we do what now? Because that's not great for me. Yeah. I feel like I've been put at risk here. Nobody wants to get the ass staph. That's the worst kind. Uh, next question Second this week worst. comes to us from all Jermaine Silver, who asks. Oh, I see. You see yeah. what he did? Yep. I do see what he did. Subject line, flag ban back, question mark. Then the email just says, interesting timing, don't you think? Please discourse. Now, it was just a couple weeks ago, Ben, as you pointed out, that Dana White sat up on the stage at a press conference and talked about how the UFC was ending its ban on fighters walking to the octagon with flags from various countries. And he basically said, 
I know you pussies aren't going to like this. Yeah. But you got to toughen up because we're bringing flags back to the octagon, no matter whose feelings it hurt against. Again, I'm paraphrasing. And you brought up the great point that like nobody besides the UFC ever complained about the flags. No one ever said, hey, man, we want fewer flags in the octagon. It was the UFC from start to finish who took the flags out of the octagon in the first place. So Dana White coming out and saying, sorry to step on you weaklings toes by bringing the (laughs) flags back was kind of a nonsensical thing to say. But now, and frankly, we don't know if this is the case for all these events. And the only thing I believe that we're going off here is a tweet, correct? Uh, well, the tweet and that you didn't see any flags. You did not see any flags. So there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that this is true. It was a tweet. Just let me see who the tweet was from. Oh, Mohammed Mokayev put out a tweet. Yeah. that said, no flags at UFC 94, wide eyes emoji. Uh, so yeah, if that is true, um, kind of an interesting about face from the company that just told us two weeks ago that all of us pussies could shut up about the flags because they were bringing them back to the octagon. Yeah, it does seem to be a series of unforced errors there because it's not like Dana White was like, I'm sick of every time I come to these press conferences, you guys are pestering me about when the flags can come back. Nobody, like nobody was mad about the flags being there. And then people weren't really that like focused on the flags not being there until you made a big deal about how you were bringing them back. And then two weeks later, like the very next pay-per-view event, then they're gone again. And I, I mean, I think we all kind of get what was going on here, right? I mean, obviously, whenever you mention something like this on Twitter, there's always going to be the the Dana White defenders who want to rush to his rescue. One person tried to tell me, Chad, that it would be illegal in Abu Dhabi (laughs) for them to, like, let these fighters show their flags, Uh. which I would invite you to go and look up the Team USA versus Team Greece basketball game that happened in the same arena. Do you think that they were like, hey, I know we normally would show your flags and play your national anthems, but we can't do that due to local loss? No, of course not. Had the flags, had the national anthems, all that stuff. Also, people were screenshotting like the arena rules that say you can't bring flags. And they're like, see, it's not the UFC's rules, it's the arena. And it's like, motherfucker. The arena rules probably also say you can't be barefoot and stripped to the waist and fighting, but that is for the ticket holders, my man. That is not rules meant to apply to everybody, like the people doing the stuff in the arena. We could have had the flags, but they felt like it was a probably a sensitive time to allow people to do that. And... You you do wonder who was the one making the decision in that case because it's like if you were concerned somebody's going to come out with an Israeli flag and deliver a pro-Israeli message and the local crowd in Abu Dhabi is not going to like it, seems like you could just deal with that on a case-by-case basis. Like ask people what flag you want to walk out with. Even make a rule that you can only walk out with the flag of your home country. Like something like that, fine. But it seemed like they just went, mm, we're scared of how this could play out and so we're just... We're not going to do it at all, which is how you got to the flag ban shit in the first place, man. Like, this is all you kind of doing this. And instead, it's like you do end up with a bunch of pro-Palestinian post-fight speeches anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I don't really, I'm not sure what you accomplished by going back on your own pro-flag speech from two weeks ago. Uh, 
it, it just seems like you're just sort of highlighting that you're not thinking a lot of this stuff through too far in advance. It's just sort of the the rich guy who's in charge being like, damn it, I want to see the flags. Oh, wait, no, not those flags. Don't want to see them. Yeah. You know? Um, sensitive time in a sensitive place probably is what's going on there. I, I wanted to squeeze this one in, and then maybe we got one more here from uh, Dan Alexander, but I'm going to do this one from Henpecked Hal, just because it's funny. Subject line, Coker, T-K-O-R-5, and then in, in parentheses, via spite. <laughs> he says... Well, despite idling its way toward the land of wind and ghosts, Bellator set aside some time over the weekend for one last piece of business, cutting Dylan Danis. It's pretty remarkable, really. With one event left, there's really not a reason to cut anyone. If anything, it's just more paperwork. It's the equivalent of filing a divorce as you're checking into hospice. Wholly unnecessary. <laughs> I can just picture Scott Coker in his office rolling up a Kimbo versus Dada 5000 poster, pausing and saying to himself, actually, you know what? Fuck that guy. I guess if you're going out, you might as well take someone with you. That's just, that's an amazing email from Henpeck. That is. And also, oh my uh, God. maybe a good point also. All right. I, I want to get this one in from Dan Alexander because maybe it teases us up for the rest of the show. He wrote, with both last minute fight card saving step-ins losing, were we sold a three-legged rocking horse in the buildup? Or should we celebrate the two full camp home-supported weight-advantaged fighters? Uh, please discourse. Now, this is an interesting question because it does perhaps get to the root of these co-main and main event fights that we had at UFC 294. You mentioned this on Friday during the power yes, hour band that we had a couple of interesting fights, a couple of perhaps exciting matchups to get fans uh, uh, hyped for this one. But, but the odds said that these wouldn't be competitive. You questioned whether or not these would be competitive. Actually, the fight that we thought would be the less competitive turned out to be the more competitive once they went out there and actually did the damn thing. But what do you think? Was this a success competition-wise, or I guess fan engagement-wise for the UFC with these kind of last-minute makeshift fill-in matchups? I hate to say I told you so, Chad. Oh, you except do not. That I you do love not it. hate it. You love it. I love it. every moment of it. Yeah. I mean, this is what I said would happen, right? Is that we went out there with a couple late-notice fill-ins, and then if they didn't do well, people would be like, wait a minute, as awesome as it was... To be like, hell yeah, these dudes are stepping up. As nice as it is to keep the fights together. And as fun as a little added chaos might be in a sport like this. There is that sort of post-event clarity moment that comes where you go, wait a minute. Of course, that shit does not make for the best possible performances. Because there's a reason why you train for this stuff. There's a reason why most people spend weeks preparing for these fights. And... You know, you could make the case that, hey, what would you have preferred? Would you have preferred to just cancel those top two fights? Because that wouldn't have been much fun. And, you know, we do see good performances on short notice sometimes. But there's no way for us to come out of, especially that main event, and go, well, yeah, this was Islam Mahachev proving that he is just miles better than Alexander Volkanovsky. Because we, we've seen them fight twice. Once when Volk had a chance to prepare and it was super competitive. Once when he didn't and he got knocked out in the first round. And it's hard not to think that there's at least some connection between the time you have to get ready and the kind of fight that you can put on. Yeah, no, I agree. And with that, I think we will get into a little bit deeper discussion about these fights. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks... 
You know how to do it. You go to the website, comadevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, it took Islam Mahachev three minutes and six seconds to dispatch Alexander Volkanovsky in their lightweight rematch over the UFC title, kicked off the ending sequence with a head kick, followed it up against the cage with some hammer fists until the referee, who I believe was Mark Goddard, stepped in to call this off. Impressive performance all the way around, honestly, from Islam Mahachev, and perhaps most impressive to me for him was the fact that other than some clinch work in this fight, there was no real, real, like, prolonged grappling. The fight was so short, maybe we didn't even have time to get to that, but still. He basically went out there, threw them hands with Alexander Volkanovsky, ended up knocking him out with a head kick, which you could tell that he had set up through the first three minutes of the fight, and then... Islam Mahachev walks around the cage doing the shh celebration, which led, frankly, to probably what will end up being the iconic MMA photo of the year of him doing the finger to lips celebration with uh, with Alexander Volkanovsky crumpled against the cage in the background. But I also wonder, did anyone need to get shushed? Like (laughs) he went out there as more than a two to one favorite and then he won. So I'm not totally sure who needed to get shushed, Ben Volks. Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that gesture takes on a different meaning for him than the one we're used to in American sports, where it is like you're the visiting team telling the home team to shut up because yeah. you just, you took away their reason to cheer. Maybe that's not what he was going for. I do think it's super impressive. He lands that kick and it's not like Alexander Volkanovsky really did anything too wrong. No. His, he, he knew still it was had coming. his guard he up. Had his, he, had, he was doing all the right stuff. I mean, he he got caught leaning toward it a little bit as if he was preparing for a body kick that he wanted to defend. But still, he, he leans just a little bit toward it. Shin upside his head, though, puts him down. And then Mahachev pounces, finishes him with the strikes. You do have to admit that it's an impressive performance. As much as we might sit here and go... Well, maybe we didn't get the best of Alexander Volkanovsky because of the short notice. We do have to give credit to Islam Mahachev because, as we say, he can only win the fights they give him. Yeah. And he won this one and looked good doing it and became the first guy in the UFC to be able to put away Alexander Volkanovsky. So give him that credit because it's hard to do better than a first round TKO of a guy who is a champion, albeit in a lighter weight class. Um, but also one of the current pound-for-pound greats. Yeah. No significant strikes landed for Alexander Volkanovsky. They said on the broadcast, I don't know if that was updated in the post-fight for the stats, but that is pretty pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. Yeah, Islam Mahachev, a tremendous performance for him. He landed a lot of kicks basically from the opening bell, a lot of low kicks, a lot of body kicks to to set up, I think, that head kick. He tried the head kick in the first couple minutes, and it looked like it partially landed, and then the second time he went back to the well, he ends up 
as you said, with the nice shot going right over the top of Alexander Volkanovsky's guard and putting him out. He said, quote, in the post-fight interview, this is what we were training for the last couple of months for Oliveira and nothing changed for Volkanovsky, which is an interesting strategy, I think. I would have thought you would want to make some alterations to your training, but I guess uh, if you didn't, it worked out just fine against a different kind of fighter in Alexander Volkanovsky. Now, the UFC, especially during the broadcast in the lead-up to this, went kind of hard on declaring it a quote-unquote true super fight, which I guess technically is true, but I don't know if I would really pull out all the stops in billing it as a true super fight, just considering the extenuating circumstances around this thing. Yeah, it was also... It was a little bit of a stark reminder in a couple different ways that this sport is different than other ones and that it's easy to sit here and say like, hey, what a great tough guy Alexander Volkanovsky is. Uh, What a brave guy he is to step up and say, sure, right away, I'll take this fight. 11 days notice, don't care. I'll get in there and I'll do it. And everybody's going, yeah, like, look at that guy, not afraid to back himself, as he puts it, take the risk, get in there. And then you get kicked in the head, get your eyes split open, and get your brain rocked around a little bit. And you only got so many of those in you as a pro fighter. So it's not just like, you know, you you stepped up to play a basketball game. It didn't go your way. And you you show up and lace up your shoes tomorrow and and get back in the gym. There is some consequence. You you do pay for it in a way. I did think it was really illuminating to hear his comments afterwards that, helped you understand why he might have said yes to this so quickly when he started to talk about how when he he does not feel like he does well mentally when he's not busy when he's not fighting and i heard a lot of fighters say some version of this or these often less clearly and eloquently honestly like the way he explained it, it it very much made sense i thought to be like when you're in between fights and you kind of don't know what you're doing with yourself you anybody when you go from an intense period of activity and focus and purpose and then you sort of fall into a void after that that's a big transition to go through and anybody could fall into a depression that way and him saying like you know fighting is if you get a date on the calendar now you got something you don't have to wake up every day and ponder the entirety of existence you know you know what you're gonna do You're going to fight this guy in a cage on Saturday night and your whole life is going to be about preparing for that. And a lot of fighters will say that there's a major appeal to that kind of lifestyle, that living your life in those kind of chunks, but that also kind of throws you into this void when you don't have it. And that, I think, really did help a lot of us understand what his calculation might have been. Because, you know, he also, some of his... Post-fight quotes led you to believe maybe he wasn't in five-round shape when he said yes to this fight 11 days out, but that the desire to have something on the calendar and to have a focus to distract himself from anything else going on inside his mind was greater than the concern about not being well enough prepared. Yeah. Which is reasonable. Yeah, he's talking about trying to come back in January to fight Ilya Tupuria, which seems like a little bit of a fast turnaround to me, especially for a guy who came out of this thing with two nasty cuts, one over each eye. So we'll see what happens to Alexander Volkanovsky moving forward. I I hope that he doesn't get himself into some bad situations just because of his inability to sit still at home. So uh, 
We'll see what he and City Kickboxing decide to do in the in the wake of this one. Islam Mahachev, he has won a ton of fights in a row here. He has now defended the lightweight title two times after beating Charles Oliveira for the vacant championship back in October of 2022. Both of those defenses, however, are over Alexander Volkanovsky. He still hasn't, not to shortchange Volkanovsky, I don't mean this that way, but he still hasn't defended the title against anyone in the lightweight top 15. This was supposed to be Charles Oliveira. As everybody knows, Charles Oliveira had to back out. There are no shortage of contenders at 155 pounds. Mahachev and Justin Gaethje have mutually agreed that Justin Gaethje should be next, but I don't necessarily know if we've heard anything from the UFC. What do you think? Charles Oliveira upon uh, regaining full health or Justin Gaethje or someone else for Islam Mahachev up next? You know, I can see the, especially the case for Justin Gaethje, just because exciting knockout kind of fighter, a guy who's going to come in there always and bring you some action. You know, the... The Charles Oliveira one as a rematch, I feel like, especially coming out of one where we just saw you in an instant rematch, I don't know. I think that there's a hunger more so now to see him against somebody new. Yeah. You know, especially because it seems like, okay, you won the belt and then you fought not only the same guy twice, but a featherweight twice. Like, we know you could beat Charles Oliveira. That one wasn't particularly competitive. You beat Alexander Volkanovsky. The second one wasn't particularly competitive. Let's see something brand new. And against, God help us please, a lightweight, an actual lightweight. I know you were excited about seeing Hasbulla in the cage. Oh, my God. He's back. Maybe he never left Hasbulla up there in the cage following Islam Mahachev's win. You talked about these post-fight interviews. One of them was Islam Mahachev jumping on the mic and saying, Palestine, we stand with you. So if there was an effort to keep politics out of the cage, God, I wish these MMA fighters would just keep politics out of the cage, everyone always <laughs> says. Actually, it's the media that they're mad at about that. But then here you got here you got statements both from Mahachev and Khamzat Chemaev that uh, – that were, you know, popular with the with the live crowd. I don't know if the UFC was trying to move away from that or what, but it certainly certainly did not work in these two instances. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the stuff Dana White said in the aftermath of this fight because he did go on the record saying something, I'm paraphrasing again, but something to the effect of, I think Islam Mahachev could be better than Habib Nurmagomedov. This you know, quote got retweeted, the MMA news sites, Bandy did it about. And every time I see this, I'm like, man, we are still doing this. We have been down this road for 20 years. And we are still letting Dana White say that the champion he's trying to make money off of now might be better than the champion he can no longer make money off of. Like this is, this is day one promoter stuff. First page of the boxing slash MMA promoter textbook Always promote the guy you've got now as the greatest of all time. But you know what? With Islam Mahachev, I don't even know if I can argue. I guess I'm not saying it's not true because, uh, you know, we know Islam Mahachev's got the grappling, but his striking seems like it's fairly on point at this point as well. Yeah, I guess I would just say, remember when Kamar Usman was champ and we were, uh, Dana White was talking about how he might be about to surpass GSP? Mm-hmm. And then Kamaru Usman's no longer the champ, and you don't hear Dana White saying anything about that anymore. 
So it is, this is just the way this aspect of the business works. We're still very early into the Islam Mahachev era at lightweight. <laughs> we have yet to see him defend the title against somebody in his own weight class. So I'm not saying he's not good. Guy is obvious. Obviously, Chad, that boy good. Yeah. Obviously, yep. uh, he, he became champion for a reason. Um, but maybe let's wait and see how it goes when you actually have to defend that title against a series of challengers because that uh, that's a lot tougher, I think, than people realize. All right, let's move into Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can we can get on with round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week? Well, Chad, you mentioned this a little bit. Uh, naturally, we are going to get every penny out of the UFC's long-term deal with Hezbollah. But I got to say, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know how it feels sometimes trying to explain this sport to other people? To people outside the bubble. I watched this one, especially the I watched the co-main and the main event here over at the the home of some friends here in Missoula. And there was uh, one of the people there was a artist in residence here visiting the University of Montana. And this was her first MMA event watching it. And do you know how difficult it is <laughs> to explain to her why, yes, they are carrying that person as if he is a toddler, but he is not. Is he uh, like associated with one of the fighters camps? Is he, does he train with them or something? No, he's more of just kind of like a human mascot. Um, and you're like, oh, is that just like that team's personal guy who they love? No, he actually does have a deal with the UFC. A deal? What does he do with? Well, I don't know either, really. They so Are you fucking kidding me? Do you know how we sound? Just when we try to explain the facts of a situation, we sound insane. <laughs> yeah. No. We Are do. you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I we mean, just get used to it. We're like, of course, yeah, they're going to bring Hezbollah. They're going to carry him around like a, a baby. The, the pose in the pictures and stuff afterwards. Like, we all, we think of that just, you know, we're used to it. That's just how this sport works. Other people go, wait a minute. this You guys do this like every weekend. You guys watch this sport, huh? Fucking kidding me. You watched UFC 294 with an artist in residency. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. I mean, I know who Hasbula is. And the first time I saw him on the screen last night, I was like, oh, does Islam Mahachev have a child? And then I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's Hasbula. He back. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. Doing whatever it is he does for the <laughs> UFC. You fucking kidding me? Uh, I know we're going to get into talking about Hamza Chemaev's victory over Kamara Usman in round number two, Ben. But the one thing that struck me after this thing was over... Is that while Hamza Chemaev is standing there having his post-fight interview, his jujitsu coach comes over and hangs a brown belt over yeah. his his neck. And I thought to myself, did Hamza Chemaev just get his brown belt in the cage after beating Kamaru fucking Usman? His brown belt, dude. Are you fucking kidding me? Come, I mean, you're the resident jujitsu correspondent here at the at the co-main event podcast i gotta ask you what the fuck are we doing here guy's gonna get his brown belt after defeating the former ufc welterweight champion in a fight in the octagon i mean i can see him getting his black belt ben but his fucking brown belt the fuck is up with that there was 
a split second where I considered the possibility, what if he's just been demoted? <laughs> what if they were like, a majority decision over Kamaru Usman? No, I'm sorry. We cannot allow you to represent our school as a black belt anymore. You're going back to brown until you prove yourself. Because that would have made more sense, honestly, than you telling me that walking into this fight, a guy who's a who's been a pro for over five years, who's uh, now 13 and 0 into the in the UFC, five wins by submission. That walking in, he was a purple belt. Yeah. We talked about how bad it would be to show up to Worlds and have Demetrius Johnson in your brown belt division and you being like, come on, dude. Yeah. You're like the pound for pound goat over here competing in the brown belt division. Knock it off. I trained really hard for this. You're (laughs) ruining it. I cut four pounds. The the one thing I could say that would be absolutely worse is if you rolled up in there and in the purple belt division – Considering yourself sort of intermediate, yeah, pretty at good. Grappling Been at this and for a in while. your division is Hamza Chamaev, like kneeling over on the other side of the mat, staring at you, raising <laughs> smiling, his eyebrows, smiling at you, and you'd be just like, "Come on!" As everybody else sees this, right? This yeah. is bullshit. Yeah, this is kind of like telling Tom Brady he's going to be on the junior varsity team mm-hmm. after he wins the fucking Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Uh, I did find this quote from Kamzat Chamayev's Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, Alan, or Alan, I don't know which, Donacimento. He says, quote, I'm making Kamzat expose all these flake, fake black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, that is in MMA. Why? Because nowadays people just get belts like they go to McDonald's. They don't do the job. How many black belts in his career has he finished? So that shows. That's about it. I'm using him to expose many guys. If you're not legit, you better run. I mean, look, I get it, okay? Maybe maybe they're giving out too many black belts. I get it. Hamza Chamayev, though, brown belt. Are you fucking kidding me? Who are your fucking black belts? Godzilla? Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> just, what the fuck are we doing? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Again, not only just that he is now a brown belt, but that he was a purple belt. <laughs> When he was, you're telling me that when Hamza Chemaev is is rolling in there, you know, and just absolutely fucking ragdolling Kevin Holland, uh, when he's choking out the leech, Li Jingliang, when he's winning these grappling competitions, that was all purple belt shit. Shit, he might have been a blue belt back then. We don't know. We do not know. Fucking kidding me. You fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, we've talked here a little bit about Hamzat Chemaev's performance against Kamaru Usman, another guy coming in on short notice, up a weight class, and this one definitely more competitive. He ends up with a majority decision victory here, and we're talking about a title shot next for Hamzat. I got to read you this quote because I am once again, Chad, in the uncomfortable position of kind of sort of agreeing with Sean Strickland and damn it, I don't like it. (laughs) But his comment after this fight, quote, he doesn't fucking deserve a title shot. 
meaning Hamzat. But here we are. Give it to him. He sells a lot of fights. I'll go fucking fight the man for five rounds. But no, he has not earned it. He doesn't fucking deserve it. And getting a, a decision with a welterweight off the couch does not fucking earn it. Yeah. Now, a lot of people will not unfairly make the case that Sean Strickland himself didn't exactly earn his title shot, that it was sort of circumstances that conspired to give him his title shot. He made the most of it. He went in there and beat Israel Adesanya for five rounds, so you got to give him that. And yet, does he make a good point here? You go in there, you fight a guy who was a welterweight champ, you know, one of the best welterweights in his time, but also not a middleweight and not a full camp to prepare for this one, and you kind of just barely beat him. That's not exactly a mandate as the number one contender just in and of itself. Do you agree? Yeah, if we're talking about common sense, if we're talking about who deserves what, then I think that logic does hold up. But as everyone knows, we're not talking about any of that stuff when it comes to how the UFC works or how mixed martial arts in general works. Did Kamzat Chemaev prove that he deserves a title shot in the middleweight division with a majority decision win over a short notice Kamaru Usman? Probably not. In fact, I think mostly what we found out about about Kamzat Chemaev in this fight is what kind of guy he's going to be. We found out what guy he's going to be in the UFC, which I want to talk about in a minute. But like I said on Friday during the Power Hour, you look around the UFC middleweight division, and it's not like there are a ton of other compelling challengers right now for Sean Strickland. Israel Adesanya just announced a hiatus. You have DDP, but, you know, he kind of got crosswise with the UFC recently. Robert Whitaker, Jared Cannonier, Marvin Vittori, Paulo Costa, Roman Delize, Jack Hermanson, Brendan Allen, Kevin Gastelum is your top 10. So I think if the UFC has the chance to book any of those guys or book Kamzat Chemaev, they're probably going to do Kamzat Chemaev. So uh, whether or not he's right or not, Sean Strickland should probably start getting ready for that because I think that's probably what they're going to do. Now, my question for you is, because I think we just found out what kind of guy Hamzat Chemaev is going to be in this division. And by that, what I mean is he's a weather the storm guy is what it looks like. You got to go out there in the first round and weather the storm against Kamzat Chemaev, during which, by the way, he looks absolutely suffocating. Mm -hmm. But once you get through that, I think we saw once again in this fight, he kind of fades. He faded in the second and third round a little bit here against Kamara Usman. So if he is going to be weather the storm guy, who, by the way, is an archetypal guy in the UFC. Yeah. We've seen all kinds of weather the storm guys over our tenure in this sport. Vitor Belfort may be, he may be the guy whose picture is in the dictionary next to weather the storm guy. Right. Yeah, archetypal weather yeah. the storm guy. There. Vitor Belfort. Hamza Chemaev looks like he is going to be a weather the storm guy. So my question for you, if you are Sean Strickland, do you feel better or worse about knowing that after watching this fight? Because conventional wisdom on one hand says Kamza Chemaev is a fucking nightmare matchup for Sean Strickland. However, the one thing Sean Strickland has going for him is good cardio and this kind of like straightforward volume-based pressure boxing attack. So if you're Sean Strickland, do you feel better or do you feel worse? I think Sean Strickland is honestly pretty well suited 
to weather some storms. Yeah, right? He He's not a guy who we've seen go out there and, you know, with the exception of maybe that Alex Pereira fight, uh, get easily finished. He He's not afraid to go through some tough stuff. You know, he is clearly a resilient guy, but also when he is on his game is kind of a frustrating dude for people to deal with. And if the question is, could Sean Strickland get through round one with Hamza Shmaev and then wear him down over the next four? Eh, maybe, you know, I, I, at least I would understand why when he's saying, fuck it, I'll fight the guy, even though I don't think he's earned it. It doesn't seem like Sean Strickland is exactly terrified yeah. of Hamza Shmaev, especially after seeing this fight. So like, yeah, I, I think that there is something to that. There is, you could see a little sense in that, especially if you're, Sean Strickland, you've seen now Hamza Chmaev in a couple fights where you go, this guy, especially in the later rounds, if you get him into a striking exchange, it won't be super technical on his part. Yeah, He can be convinced to just sort of plan his feet, put his head down and throw, and uh, that maybe Sean Strickland feels like he is well-suited to take advantage of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I think, again, like we often talk about with these title shots, what, how the UFC is going to make a decision about who's next will depend a ton on availability right. and when they want to do this fight. Chimaev said that you know he might have an injured hand after this one. We don't know exactly what DDP's health situation is, but he had said you know he was hurt going into the Robert Whitaker fight, didn't want to accept Israel Adesanya on that kind of notice because he needed to take some time off and heal. Who knows when the UFC has it on the calendar that we want to see another middleweight title fight. But it'll depend. You know, if if Hamza Jumeyev has a broken hand and he has to sit out and wait for it and DDP is reasonably ready, then he could very easily get the call. And then we'll be hearing all about how uh, DDP has unquestionably earned this. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll forget about Jumeyev for a little while. Um, so I don't know. If I'm, if I'm Sean Strickland, I would not take it as a given that it's going to be you and Hamza next. Yeah, that's a good point. It is a lot about the schedule and availability in the UFC right now. So that might be the ultimate deciding factor in who goes next here against Sean Strickland. Uh, Hamza Chimaev is only 29 years old, which is kind of amazing to think about. He still has a lot of opportunity to evolve and progress in this in this sport. So maybe he won't always be a weather the storm guy. Uh, and like I said before, he was so impressive in the first round of this thing at establishing his dominance at getting to the positions that he wanted to be in early. He looked like he was on the verge of a quick stoppage uh, at the very beginning of this thing. He maintained full back control, probably rightfully a 10, eight round for him. And honestly, I thought it was impressive for Kamara Usman to even survive that first round. But then you see him in these second and thirds rounds, second and third rounds, he slows way down, allows Kamara Usman to, to come out, and win kind of a tepid second round where not much happens. Us or uh, uh, Chimaev landed a, a late takedown that I don't necessarily affected the don't think necessarily affected the score much. But then the, this, you know, the thing that I thought was interesting is that Usman comes out in the third and he's kind of lighting him up in the striking early on. He was doing frankly exactly what Trevor Whitman told him to do between rounds, which is try to keep Kamzat Chimaev on his heels. But then after about two minutes. Usman went, he tried to shoot a takedown and I don't know if he like actually wanted to commit to the takedown or if it was just like a, Hey, I want you to have this in mind kind of a takedown, but Kamzat defend, defended it obviously. And then it, it kind of seemed to, uh, 
to really take the wind out of Usman's momentum that he had. Like he just couldn't really get back into the striking after that. And then uh, Chemayev took him down again and ended up kind of grinding it out until uh, until the decision there. But like, this was a close fight, man. If Kamar Usman had not maybe shot in for that takedown, had just continued to fight at range and continued to to kind of pick and choose and pepper uh, Chemayev with, with strikes, he could have won this thing or at least forced a draw. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, man, because, you know, you go five rounds in this thing, or maybe if Kamar Usman has a full training camp, I could well see a different a different outcome here. Yeah, because it did seem like Usman was tired later on, and you could understand why, you know, given the, the situation that he took this fight in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it did, in a lot of ways, help us see that while Hamzad has a lot of stuff going for him, a lot of stuff in the positives column, he is not an unbeatable monster. Yeah. And you've seen now, and with this fight, and I think that Gilbert Burns fight, that there are some holes there. And they, I'm sure there are other guys in the middleweight division who are thinking, I could exploit those holes. Especially because when we're seeing some of these holes on display against smaller guys, against guys from a lower weight class. And a lot of, I'm sure a lot of the bigger middleweights are feeling like, well, I could do better than that yeah. against this guy. Yeah. I mean, he seems like he is easy to get baited into a firefight a little bit yeah. here. He seems like his aggressiveness and, and for lack of a better term, hot-headedness might kind of be one of his Achilles heels. I was watching this fight and I was thinking to myself, he's going to get knocked out at some point, not against Kamara Usman, but like somebody, if he continues to like be so willing to trade punches with people, if he gets in there with a middleweight who is a knockout artist and a hard hitter, I could totally see Kamzat Shemaev getting knocked out. But, you know, time will tell. He jumps on the mic after this thing is over. Uh, gives kind of like a nice guy post-fight speech, honestly, talking about, you know, when kids die, it's hard, and, you know, call, calling for unity, essentially. I did not expect that from Kamzat Shemaev, of course. C- coming out pro-child, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's good to see. Sometimes that's all it takes in this sport, man coming out against the death of children is uh is good enough to to like score you some nice guy points. Of course then uh the next day he is in a video with Ramzan Kadyrov uh basically flying him to Chechnya in what I believe was Kadyrov's private plane and you know hugging and slapping backs and all that. So well also I saw this thing there's a story on Bloody Elbow that talks about the uh you know he he made all those comments in English and then requested the microphone back and then, you know, we switched languages and uh, said that, you know, this purports to be a translation of his remarks in Chechen, uh, which were addressed specifically to Ramzan Kadyrov, but basically boiled down to give me some guns and send me to Palestine to fight, um, which is, you know, it's a tonal shift uh, from what we were doing there. And also, you know, it must have been a moment where he's doing this speech in English. He's talking about, you know, it's it's terrible when children die and you're going, yeah, yeah. And then, like, he's like, one more thing. It's the microphone from Daniel Cormier. Daniel, Dan has to stand there while he goes off and has no idea what he's saying. And it feels like a lengthy, yeah, a lengthy speech that he gives there. And everybody watching on the broadcast is just kind of like, well, no idea. No idea what he said. Hope it was cool. <laughs> and there we go. That's, yeah. All right, that's going to go for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, here we are this Saturday, October 28th. It's going down. Francis Ngannou and Tyson Fury going to have their boxing match billed as, quote, the battle of the baddest. I got to say, man, I don't know if anybody could be described as more in tune and or potentially hyped for this fight than you or I. This should be right in our wheelhouse. Big Fran going out there to slang them thangs with Tyson Fury. And still, I had to go to the Googles this morning to be like, wait, is that this weekend? Yeah. Google it. And there we are. Holy hell, this weekend this is going down. I feel like it's been smartly promoted, and all of the videos that I've seen have been great. Like, all of the pre-fight hype stuff has been great. And yet, here we are, Monday, the week of this fight, and I still feel like it hasn't really made a dent in a lot of combat sports, in a lot of the combat sports landscape, I guess I would say. I mean, I feel like it was. Like, some of the pre-fight material that we've seen put out, like you said, was really well done slickly produced looked cool got you interested and excited for it i still think maybe a little bit of a mistake for tyson fury to be like and i'll be doing a real boxing match shortly (laughs) after this one i think that 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 undercuts the excitement and the big fight feel of this one uh i'm guessing that the thinking there was you know you do a little stuff a few weeks out but you also know with the short attention spans and a fragmented media landscape and other stuff claiming people's attention in the sports world, like, you know, UFC 294, you, you can do only so much weeks out that really when you have to put your foot down on the gas would be fight week. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes this week because you kind of do have the weekend to yourself. The UFC is off this week. You know, you, you, the next fight night is uh, pretty forgettable. It's not till oh, kind of mid-November that UFC 295 is going to get back in there. So you do have an opportunity to really ramp it up this week, and it'll be interesting to see how successfully they're able to do that. Because I'm sure there are a lot of people sitting around being like, oh, yeah, I remember being excited about that when I first heard about it, uh, but kind of fell off your radar, and you don't. they, they need to be reminded, the shit is this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I, maybe they'll turn it up this week. It's you know that's what we see the UFC do a lot of times is that these pay per views that you feel like they sneak up on you and then the week of the fight they hit you with a lot of uh, pre fight publicity. So we'll see we'll see what happens. Obviously, all of the headlines this week essentially fo- essentially focusing on the notion that Francis Ngannou has no chance against Tyson Fury, and it would be foolish I think to say that he does. I think that not only is it obviously an impossible task for someone to come into their first professional boxing match and and fight one of the greatest heavyweights of all time, but also it just seems like physically Tyson Fury and stylistically Tyson Fury is a bit of a nightmare matchup for Francis Ngannou. The way he fights, the, the way he uses that long reach to keep people away from him just seems like it will be tough for a relative neophyte in Francis Ngannou to get through in order to land those those big bombs that he throws. And yet, what yeah. if he does? What if he does, though? What if he does? And honestly, if you have no choice but to try to sell a fight on puncher's chance alone, you could do worse than Big Fran 
as the guy you have to base it on, right? Like if you if you can say, hey, this guy's one chance is to land one big sort of lucky bomb, and you, the picture you show of the guy is Francis Ngannou, could be worse, you know. That's the guy who looks like he could land one big bomb and, you know, has in the past. Uh, You're right, though, that if you're just trying to sell us on this will be a clash between two of the most skilled heavyweights in the world, eh, that's not really going to work. But you can really just lean into big, meaty men slapping meat. Yeah. Which is sort of what that one ad did, right? Like, we're out there hitting stuff to where it's crumbling the walls around each other. Uh, Okay. Sure, that kind of works. Plus, you're going the lineal MMA heavyweight champion versus uh, the boxing's best heavyweight. That works, too. Uh, Basically, their appeal should be it's going to be a big, loud show, like that big, the the kind of thing that boxing can give you that the UFC doesn't really try to give you anymore, where it's over-the-top production. We're gonna, each, everybody's going to take 20 minutes to get to the ring. We're going to give you a big, down, dumb, loud show. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe one guy will be able to do the unthinkable and land one big punch, and probably he won't. But won't that be enough for you? You will be entertained one way or another. Like, eh, that's not a terrible appeal. One thing I wonder about, especially in our current landscape, that I wonder how much it could hurt you in a fight like this, is this one's technically an exhibition, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I think they said it was a real fight. I think that at the start, they're like, it's an exhibition, but then they were like, no, it's a professional fight. That's going to count on both guys records, but Tyson Fury's title may not be on the line. It may just be for whatever that weird fake belt that they made with everybody's pictures. on. Right. That's right. Well, the thing is I'm looking around at sports books. It's week of the fight and nobody has odds on it. Hmm. DraftKings doesn't have odds on it. BetMGM doesn't have odds on it. Caesars doesn't have odds on it. They got all these other boxing odds. They got nothing. No mention of Tyson Fury, Francis Ngannou. In this world where sports betting is just more and more common and more and more available over the U.S., how much do you think it hurts that people don't have the option, most places, to throw down some money on it and and get their in their anticipation up that way? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I don't know. My, I'm kind of surprised that there aren't any odds up anywhere. That's perhaps a a chilling sign in some ways. I mean, what they what you probably need to do is put some odds up somewhere and then have Jake Paul come out and say Francis Ngannou has no shot to win, and then MMA people will get so mad at Jake Paul that they'll place a bunch of bets on Francis Ngannou. That's what you need to do. Yeah. I mean, you can find some, uh, like if you Google it, you'll find some odds, but they're not from the uh, the major sports books from what it seems. Um, maybe what you need is if you can find some odds somewhere, just tell people that Drake bet on Tyson Fury. <laughs> uh, what are those odds that you're looking at, even though they're from obscure sites? Well... I'm looking at one that has Tyson Fury as a minus 1,400 favorite to okay. win. Okay. Big Fran at plus 750. Mm-hmm. Uh, to win by knockout, Tyson Fury minus 550. Uh, so that drops significantly. Uh, Francis, uh, Francis Ngannou at plus 850. Um, so they, <laughs> they technically are forecasting a better chance for Ngannou to win by decision? No. Uh, well... Tyson Fury by decision is plus 600. So 
I think he's going to win inside the distance there. Um, right, Francis and Ganu by decision. This is where you could have some real fun. Plus five thousand. Okay. Wow. I w- I would if I had twenty dollars I never wanted to see again, and I was sitting here as an MMA homer hosting an MMA podcast. Uh, I would I would put twenty dollars on each of those. Francis Ngannou by knockout and Francis Ngannou by uh, by decision. Because the worst worst case scenario, you're out forty bucks. Best case scenario, you're going to Sizzler. Yeah, that's the best going case to Sizzler for sure. Also, I should note that now that I'm looking at this thing of the odds, it claims they're from DraftKings, which I just went to and did not see odds for. But maybe that's just a regional thing where the odds can be different. But it also claims that these are odds, Curtis, uh, as of October 28th, 2023, which has not happened yet. Okay. So, <laughs> no, there you go. That is this Saturday when the fight is going down. I will just say. Again, MMA Homer hosting my MMA podcast over here. No matter what happens on Saturday, Francis Ngannou has already won because yep. he beat the UFC at their own game in a contract negotiation, went into free agency and did the thing that all of the Zufa zombies on Twitter said that he could not do, landed the big boxing match that he wanted in the first place. And now, if reports are to be believed, will get paid many millions of dollars. Six, seven, whatever, eight million dollars, more money than he ever would have made for title defense after title defense in the UFC, at least in base salary. So, ha ha, motherfuckers. I know everyone's then, everyone's going to get online and do their little funny memes if he gets knocked out or whatever, but this is a man who has already won the game. And then even if he does get knocked out, even if he goes out there and gets knocked out immediately, he'll still be able to come back to MMA and be like, okay, I'm getting back to work here. And people will be like, and we are glad to see you. Yeah. Somebody's going to come get that two mil. All right. Let's do just saying stuff. And then we will get out of here for this week. Bandana White announced this week that the UFC has extended its deal with Abu Dhabi for five more years, which... It's no wonder, I guess, with Abu Dhabi making it such a sweet financial deal for the UFC to come over there and do shows. Dana White says the UFC will be with Abu Dhabi forever, which wow. is a very Dana White things to say thing to say. Um, I know that this card we just had on Saturday, UFC 294, seemed essentially set up to be a showcase for a bunch of regional fighters. You had Islam, you had Kamzat, they both got big wins. You had uh, Ikram Aliskarov coming on strong. You had Saeed Nurmagomedov. You had Mohamed Mokayev. Uh, it's no surprise. We've seen this coming for a while. There are so many good Russian fighters coming up right now. Uh, we could be on the verge of a, of a Russian takeover or at least a takeover of people from that region. We know Abu Dhabi is the place the UFC likes to go to showcase people from that region. And uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's likely that we start to see more and more shows going to Abu Dhabi. And so I'm just saying, do we see a day if if all of this regional takeover stuff happens, if these fighters do indeed go on to put a chokehold, no pun intended, on UFC championships, do we see a day when Abu Dhabi becomes the center of the UFC business? You know, when, where we're not looking at Las Vegas as the center of the UFC's world anymore. I know it would be a huge shift. It's not necessarily something that that's easy to imagine, but I'm just saying maybe, maybe we see that just saying. Well, if we do see that, does this mean a lot of Saturday afternoon fight cards in our future? Cause I'm just saying I could kind of get into that. I mean, it seems like Dana White likes hanging out there. 
you know, if he, maybe he's burned all of his bridges at the, at the places in Vegas, maybe all of a sudden he's got himself a penthouse apartment over there in Abu Dhabi. Just saying, just saying, just saying. Well, Jed, I'm just saying, going to read you a tweet here from most valuable promotions for the record. Jake Paul will not be boxing Nate Diaz again. (laughs) It continues. Nate Diaz and Jake Paul have received an offer from at PFL MMA to rematch an MMA in the smart cage. Jake Paul has accepted the offer. Hot diggity dog. This week, I'm just saying. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'll believe it when I see it. You don't think he's crazy enough? You don't think he's 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 got the stuff? It's, the wording is interesting. Jake Paul has accepted the offer. Mm-hmm. As if we're trying to suggest that maybe Nate Diaz won't. And maybe we're just doing this for attention in the meantime. I'm just saying. Let me know when these two guys are standing in the aforementioned smart cage wearing the PFL gloves, standing across from each other, ready to fill the screen with one-third of it blocked off by stats and whatnot, then I'll tune in. Till then, I'm skeptical. Just saying. Well, Jake Paul has announced that he's going to have a boxing match in December, right? He just hasn't said who it's going to be against. So if he's doing that, then we're looking at, what, May? April, May? Something like that that would be probably the soonest that these guys could even think about an MMA fight. So might as well put out some press releases in the meantime. Might as well. Might as well. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We'll be over on the Patreon page all week. You can come join us there. We got Wednesday's power, Wednesday's live chat, Thursday's doing the damn thing, Friday's power hour. We have a lot of fun. You should get in the door. Patreon.com slash co-main event. For all of our beloved patrons and supporters, we do appreciate you so much. We'll see you this week. For everybody else, we'll talk to you again next Monday. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. You got all these PR people working for you. The least they can do is type up a press release. Type up a press release telling you nothing has happened. Just claim that you have accepted an offer to fight Genghis Khan at a date to be named later. We'll see if the great Khan has the stones to step up and accept. Yeah, Jake Paul is already accepted, is what I heard. Why not? <laughs> <laughs>